This podcast contains swear words. Hello, welcome to Talking Shit with Tara Cheyenne. I'm your host, Tara Cheyenne Friedenberg, on the ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish people here on the west coast of Turtle Island. And this podcast is all about art making, talking to art makers about all the things that surround making art, which is everything, which is life. And although I'm coming from the perspective of a performing and creating artist, the themes and issues discussed here apply to all of us. Whether you consider yourself an artist or not, life is a creative act. We're all just making it up. Before we dig into today's interview, just a little reminder, as I always say, please do like, share, rate, review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Word of mouth is excellent, too. Help us spread the word about talking shit with Tara Cheyenne and all our fabulous guests and the fabulous things we learn from our guests to help us all stay creative. And if it is within your means, a donation helps a whole lot. You can go to terrashyan.com, upper right-hand corner, click that donate button. It takes you right there, and we will put that link in the show notes as well. All right, today's interview, Naomi Brand. Naomi is an art maker, choreographer, dancer, and one of the founders and core creators with All Bodies Dance here on the West Coast. Naomi and I dig into all kinds of interesting topics, including collaboration, conflict, creating in new ways, educating ourselves, being challenged. And I just want to flag that I interviewed another core artist with All Bodies Dance, Harmony Rose, in episode 24. So you might want to pair these two episodes episode 24 with Harmony Rose, and today's episode with the fabulous Naomi Brand. Okay. Welcome, Naomi Brand, to Talking Shit with Tara Cheyenne. So fun to have you on the show. The listeners can't see, but you've got some really groovy blue glasses going on. Well, they also can't see your excellent glasses, so... You know, maybe we should just put it in the show notes and pictures. We probably should of our very good glasses. My child hates these. He thinks I look like a grandmother. But my partner thinks I look like James Joyce, which I think is great. Well, these blue glasses, I think, are much too cool for me, but I'm trying to grow into the coolness. I hear you. Are they for reading? Is that the... They're for it all, you know. Yeah. We've come to a point in life where I need glasses for it all. (laughs) I mostly need them just for close up. But I'm doing the same thing. If I'm going to put glasses on my face, they're going to have to be a real thing. Yeah. I feel like I'm planting the seeds now for this kooky, eccentric, older adult that I will be at 75. You know, so just planting the seeds of I'm going to get cooler as I get older. Style-wise, everything else will be less cool. Yeah, well, we'll be really uncool to our children. But maybe to each other, we'll be very cool. Yeah, so as long as I have the respect of my peers, you know. (laughs) I love it. So, Naomi, you are 
a dance professional, you're a choreographer, you're a mover, you're an educator, mm-hmm. and you are currently co-artistic director of All Bodies? Yeah, I'm not so sure about titles. When I'm feeling insecure, I try not to call myself the artistic director. In some bold moments, I call myself the artistic director. I'm the co-founder of All Bodies Dance Project. So it was never the ambition that I be at the helm of this thing. That was not the plan that things happened and other people had to step away. And so, yeah, basically I do the artistic direction, but probably there's a more accurate title of that. Titles are so funny, hey? But I think you're right. On some days, that would fit. And on other days, I'm just an administrative assistant. Pretty much. I am a grip writer and an email writer. <laughs> oh my God. I'm a scheduler. I feel like that's the thing I spend the most time on is fucking scheduling. Can you tell me the story of how All Bodies happened? Okay. Short version, medium version, long version. Whichever one you want to share. Well, I will uh, attempt to do the medium version and it might end up the long version. So, you know, cut me off. <laughs> Let's go back. I moved to Vancouver in 2013. December was a great time to move here. And I'm a typical white contemporary dancer. And I was like, great, here I am. And you know what? The city doesn't need another one of those. So I was looking for a place, you know, like what's my place in this community and what's something that I could offer? And to be totally honest, a job. And all along my more typical contemporary dance training, you know, I did a bunch of plies and tendus and rolled on the ground. And alongside that, my teaching practice has always been with non-professionals and some formative stuff in my life around activism and social justice stuff. And so I started working in Calgary, which is where I was living before, with a mixed ability dance company that doesn't exist anymore, but it's called Momo Dance Theatre. And that's where I first got connected with artists with disabilities and disability community and this kind of integrated practice. So when I moved to Vancouver, this is something that I know how to do and doesn't exist in Vancouver at this moment. There have been other things. And I met a dear friend and colleague named Sarah Lapp, also goes by Sarah Bourne these days. And it was a moment of let's write a grant, make it happen. And we connected also with Marie Rossner. And so in the beginning, it was the three of us. Wrote a candle cancel grant, woohoo, build it and they will come. And now, almost eight years later, All Bodies Dance Project is a community engaged project that includes artists and people with and without disabilities, including lots of people with invisible disabilities. And our work, you know, we used to talk about it as disabled and non disabled artists working together. And now that's not as relevant, just based on who has showed up and trying to be responsive to who's been involved in the work and really who shows up, which is the main ingredient of dance is you have to show up, that our work is really now trying to figure out ways to describe it because we have a lot of older adults. We have a lot of folks that identify as fat or folks who are non-binary or from queer community. And so the kind of inclusion piece of it that originally the idea when we wrote the grant seven years ago was about disability. Now it's really expanded and neurodiversity and all these sort of things are in the mix, in the room, in the studio, on the stage. So that's kind of the story. (laughs) Wow. Wow. You use the word responsiveness too how things ebb and flow and how people are attracted to all bodies as participants, as audience. Can you talk about that and how that flow and that relationship with dance on a concert stage or non-concert stage, just how that has 
influenced the work and where All Bodies is today. I'm also interested in this whole idea of professional, non-professional, big air quotes. Yeah, totally. Being responsive has been the theme of my illustrious dance career. You know, you just think about all the seeds that I planted in my early career and we'll see which one grow. And like totally surprised, this is the one that grew. You know, when I was 19, this isn't what I thought a dance career would be, but certainly happy that this is, you know, the seed that uh, got fertilized and planted. And I think just as the story of All Bodies, in the very beginning, we have an idea of what the project is going to be, who's going to show up, what it's going to be. And then and then you have to react to who's in the room. And so no matter how great your beautiful idea is or your class plan or your vision, you know, people are real <laughs> and they bring all their stuff. And so that has been, I think, the biggest learning throughout this work. No matter what you think, predict, hope is going to happen, whatever's happening in the moment in the room is live. And it is impacted and influenced by all the shit that people bring with them. And all the things that people need and want and hate and don't want to do and do want to do. And so that line between professional and and non-professional air quotes is complex culturally and in the dance world, there's a lot. And in the art world in general, there's a lot of questioning of when professional used to be defined as you went to a a school for four years, went to a professional training program and you had three paid gigs or whatever it was. I think we're in a moment culturally where definitions or eligibility for professional are being questioned and really kind of being undone. And there's a lot of realizations now about all the biases that are within those kind of definitions and really those coming from white Western concert dance practices and ideas of training that exclude a lot of people and certainly have excluded artists with disabilities who, you know, It's not like there's a four-year training program that a wheelchair user has been able to easily pop into. And the thing about professionalism is often we think that means you show up in a particular way, you leave all your stuff at the door, you kind of like do what you're told, and that's not the work that we do in all bodies at all. (laughs) And that kind of expectation isn't in the room because people have to bring their stuff and actually their stuff is productive. It's what the art is. It's the mix of people being who they are rather than you come into the room and you kind of like aim for neutral. I trained through all these thousands of plies and tendus for a neutral body. And really what we all know is that neutral body just meant white and skinny and a ballet robot. And since there is no neutral body in our work, you know, it's not that my colleague who's a power wheelchair user is doing a turn and it's a crappy version of my standing pirouette. It's that if we're doing a movement sequence, that my version of my colleague's wheelie is the recreation of it. It's not that people are recreating what a typical dancing body would do, but that the neutral could be someone who is 82 and uses a walker, or it could be someone who's neurodivergent and is moving through the room, actually just stemming, but that's actually the content. So undoing the idea of the aim of professionalism, you know, we encourage people to bring their stuff. I mean, sometimes we ask people to leave their bad moods or something, but that's the thing of working across professional and community and non-professional is the kind of expectations about how we carry ourselves in the room. And I feel in the professional world, again, big air quotes on that, learning about the incredible potential of bringing ourselves into the work and not expecting people to 
hide the fact that they're broken or sad or obsessed with something that they really, really want to share. All those things about being human and how, especially in the dance world, it's been really this kind of culture, which I blame the colonial capitalist monster, that you, you know, shut up and dance. Yeah. And so there's so much to be gained from, like you say, what happens when we are who we are and and they're not shellacking that over. Totally. And there's also certain people can't shellac over their stuff. I've certainly been in a lot of rehearsals where I was like, okay, let's let it all go. But lots of folks with disabilities or folks with all kinds of stuff, some of that stuff you can't ask them to hide, you know, that access needs are important and valid. And we used to think about things as accommodation, like how do you accommodate this person's needs? Mm. And now, no, 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 that's not an accommodation. It's not that there's a culture that I've created and I'm going to adjust that to allow someone to enter. But actually, if someone needs an ASL interpreter to be in the room and participate in dance, what kind of possibilities does that open up for everybody around thinking about how we communicate and encouraging visual communication and the actually artistic and choreographic things that come out of that? Rather than those things being hindrances to the creative process, they're actually like really generative. They're like new creative ideas. Maybe I've exhausted the things that this pretty boring body can do. So being in a room where people have all kinds of different needs actually brings new ideas in a productive way, rather than thinking about those kind of accommodations being hindrances to productivity, which, you know, of course, we're making dances. It's not like we're an assembly line here, but we all feel that push of productivity being the thing that, yeah, capitalism. Oh, capitalism. Boo. Boo. (laughs) In terms of creating the work, I guess the product in a way, has that changed over the years or is it unique with each project and who's in the room? We're trying to figure this out right now. As an organization, as a company, we're in that teenage coming of age, maybe slightly Saturn returns kind of moment, reestablishing, okay, what are we and how do we work? The first number of years, we made pieces in this way that was anybody can come. You can show up, you can be in the rehearsals. If you can commit to the schedule, you're in it. And that made for a lot of a lot of learning, a lot of really awesome work. And a lot of work that was really hard, too. Also, it made these sort of structural things about how you make work. Well, it means that most of our work was made on evenings and weekends, which has an impact. Oh, it's really hard to find studio space on evenings and weekends and things like that, right? And then we, in the past few years, have also made pieces that dabbled into professional work, where basically we hired professional artists. And that really came out of a big Canada Council grant. You know, we got one of those very coveted Canada 150 new chapter grants. And that changed our company in a certain way because then all of a sudden we were paying people an hourly wage. And we worked on a project for two years, which in our world was a really long time to work on something, to build a piece that was called Translations. And that sort of established a really different kind of way of working for us. One that was really rigorous (laughs) and really research-based. And that has shifted the way we make work. Also, because in that piece, we were working in collaboration with a whole bunch of consultants who are partially sighted or blind or from blind community. And it shifted the way that we think about who are we making work for? That piece is made to be experienced equally by people with sight loss as sighted people. And it really challenged me as a sighted person to 
not center myself and my own aesthetic interests and biases as the thing that we're making work for. So usually I'd make a piece and if it satisfies me or you're in rehearsal and something happens and you're like, get excited about it. That's about my interest as the choreographer or the director or the person on the outside. And in making translations, we weren't making it for a sighted audience. And I all of a sudden had a big meltdown breakdown of going, well, I don't know how to make that piece because all I know is my experience of being a viewer. And so that's really changed now thinking about how do you make work for an audience that isn't going to perceive it through the same senses that I perceive it, which is kind of an impossible challenge, but one that's, I think, worth us looking at. It's such a fantastic challenge to put forward a sense that's wow, just to have the voice be the dance. Yeah, it's something that as sighted folks, we don't conceive of. Absolutely. We don't conceive of because we train for however many years to be look at my pretty moves. And if somebody can't see them, well, how's my ego validated? First of all, (laughs) how do you communicate something that is live and visceral and very visual to someone who's not going to experience it in that way. But what we learned through making that piece was by only focusing on what I look like in the mirror for 20 years, I didn't even consider about all these other possibilities of language, of touch. You know, in that work, we we have a sort of choreography of how we move the air, about sound, about space. And I never, ever, ever would have thought that if we hadn't had my dear friend Colin Van Ushelen in the room. There's one section in the work I always tell the story. So Colin was the main artistic consultant on that piece, and he's blind. And there's one section where my colleague Harmony Rose is speaking, describing what she's doing as she's doing it. And she's turning in her wheelchair and she's saying, I turn the wheels of my wheelchair like a clock. And Colin said, you know what, that section doesn't work for me at all as a blind audience member because I can hear that you're turning counterclockwise, but you're saying that you're turning like a clock. And so it doesn't make sense to my experience. No way can you hear that. And he was like, of course I can hear that. That's how I know what's happening in the world by listening to that depth. And so that moment in making translations, I was, oh, this is a whole other way of being authentic. You know, we talk about like being present and authentic and da 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 in performance. And how do you be authentic for someone who's going to experience what's happening through the sound of your dancing? Yeah, anyways. Wow. Just a nugget. That's such a good nugget. It's a good point, the whole aesthetic thing. I remember when we were making Body Parts, which is now the solo. It was the Body Project Ensemble, and now it's Body Parts. We did this thing where we all just calculated how many hours we'd spent in front of mirrors in our dance training. Thousands and thousands of hours. And when you were saying that about the aesthetic and being in front of a mirror and everything being judged by the white Euro aesthetic, which is so narrow. I mean, beauty is much broader than that. And then there's the whole realm of, well, what is not beautiful? And also just the assumption that dance is supposed to be beautiful. I mean, beauty is great and it does something for me, but also isn't the point to communicate something? Isn't it human experience and human experience is not all beautiful? Wouldn't say it's highly beautiful. (laughs) You know, like give those a little section. Yeah. It's not the whole meal. Yeah. But having said that, people really like beautiful dancing. (laughs) But that's something to unpack though too. Why do we like the beautiful dancing? Is it something about ideas of perfection or coming back to consumerism, again, capitalism? Is there something about that? And if we're 
so focused on beauty, we can kind of remove ourselves and we're not implicated the same way. Totally. I think there's something probably freeing about watching a body that actually is so overly trained and almost unrelatable that you're not implicated in the dance. The dance comes from the fantastical world of Western ballet. We're speaking about ethereal things and fairy tales and da-da-da-da. And I think maybe the experience of sitting in the audience watching bodies that you're like, well, didn't think that body could dance is maybe so relatable that the hope is, oh, my body could dance too. My body is worthy of the stage. Whereas I think the experience of some of the early ballets I saw in my formative years, that those people are so superhuman, (laughs) that they're almost not human. You know, I think about the work that I've made in the past number of years and I'm like, so human. The humanness, even if someone's range of motion is only moving their hands, what at a fundamental level is the dance value of that movement rather than moving in this kind of vocabulary that is so unachievable for 99.9% of the world. Exactly. Think about opera and ballet and the rich people going to see the super virtuosic, often broken people yeah. perform these incredible feats for this limited amount of time because they are getting progressively more broken. It's kind of gross. And it's also really beautiful. Maybe it's about that there's room for all of it. I'm definitely biased having gone through the ballet meat grinder. And I'm just so glad I left when I did because I have not had to have a hip replacement yet. (laughs) I mean, if we think about like, sometimes I watch documentaries, sometimes I watch action movies. What are the different kinds of stories or ideas or images that different kinds of bodies can tell and different kinds of practices tell, right? I think through the practices that we've evolved in all bodies, we talk about performing our values in a certain way. You know, we do these nice moves and those nice moves, but because a lot of our work is ensemble work or small group work, that what we're actually performing is the way that we interact with each other. So the dance is a microcosm of ways that we could interact with each other in the world. I make it all sound very kumbaya. We're also just trying to make nice dances that people want to watch. But yeah, like trying to also do that thing where we don't do the ends justify the means or that the final product makes you forget about this terrible process that made us all hate each other. That ratio of the performance to the process is so ridiculous in our field that we try and also not make the performance be something that is disingenuous to what the process was. To have this product that's so beautiful when we all actually weren't enjoying it. Such a good point about the process because we spend so much time in the studio making, communicating with each other, figuring it out. Early in my career, somebody said, you have to really like being in the process. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, I do. I love being in the studio so much. And all the things, all the little conversations, all the debriefing, all the check-ins, all the stuff that happens in the studio, it does end up in the work. And sometimes when I come back, when I remount things, I see it. I'm like, oh my God, that was that conversation we had that day when so-and-so blah, blah, blah. I'm just reflecting that it's real life. That's where some of the gold is. When you're not trying to come up with brilliant ideas is when all the funny stuff comes or like when the good stuff comes. And we work with a, something that was developed through the process of making translations is a list of community agreements that sort of developed out of some needs, like most 
contracty things that come out of conflict. We read them out before rehearsals often, and they get added to. One of the ones that my dear friend Danielle Wensley came up with that we remind ourselves of all the time in rehearsal is that mistakes are future jokes. We hold that as like, yeah, all the shit that goes wrong in rehearsals actually becomes the best parts of it and becomes the jokes. That's really the fun part. That's why we want to be in rehearsal with other people. What are we going to remember about the pieces? Yes, we'll remember the sections and the da 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 you know, in 20 years after we haven't done that piece, but we'll probably remember the jokes that came up when we were trying to make that piece and fucked it up really badly. Oh, it's so true. Hey, it's so true. That is the goal. You know, failure is not failure. I think failure is generative. And the things that go wrong become the fantastic memories. The things that were just smooth sailing, nothing went wrong, they can leave your memory pretty fast. Those are all the dance stories I have of performing is that time that the roof leaked and the stage was wet. We all fell. Those are the stories. All the performances that went beautifully don't actually (laughs) stick in my memory that well. (laughs) Right? It's like the bat that flew over my head in a show. (laughs) Did that just, and me trying to figure that out while still dancing. Was that a bat? (laughs) We make dances so often for these very controlled spaces of the theater where we're going to control everything about this moment. And those kind of moments, an animal comes in or somebody yells or the rain leaks through. You're like, oh, right, this theater that is this very controlled little petri dish of a thing actually exists inside the world. And those moments where you're forced to acknowledge the real world within this contrived world that you have on stage. That's kind of (laughs) cool. It's so cool. But just the word control, which I think is so kind of the hubris of humanity. We're trying to control things. We're trying to control our bodies and our minds and this experience and that experience. And when we do that, nature, the world smacks you. <laughs> nice try. Yeah. You thought you can control this 20 minutes in time? No way. <laughs> no way. Coming back to how you make, is it collective collaborative creation or just one choreographer step out or is it all of those things? All Bodies Dance Project is like an umbrella for a lot of people's work and a lot of different things. I've certainly in my role authored a lot of the works or directed things, but it is different than my own solo work where I'm like, okay, these are the moves and this is what we're going to do and this is how it's going to go. The processes that I've led, the movement is all generated by the people who are in the room. So who's in the room directly impacts what the piece is going to be. So it's not here five, six, seven, eight, go learn it kind of thing. And when other people have led processes within all bodies, you know, members of the community have led their own works, you know, they're leading from who they are. And this is a question that we're trying to answer right now, formalizing some policy for the company, but just like what makes an all bodies process? If there are 10 different people who are co-choreographing it, what makes it an all bodies piece? And I think some of the things are about values in the room and certain protocols in the room around access needs, around difference. We always sort of say, could a solo be an all-bodies dance project piece? Could a solo by a standing typical dancer be an all-bodies piece? And we're like, don't know. (laughs) How would it reflect that kind of relationship between difference? Yeah, so a lot of other people have led works and have gone through processes that are mentored or supported. I've done a lot of outside eye stuff, which is so amazingly rewarding and and such a weird position of honor to be like, you want my opinion about your work? 
but to try and make space for other people to take the lead. But a lot of the work is collaborative and really co-created. You know, usually there's somebody on the outside, just because I think that's helpful, (laughs) as you know, way better than I do. But a lot of it, it's really hard to know somebody else's body and how they move. So that the nature of the work is collaborative. Going back to that piece translations that I was talking about earlier, I definitely had the directorial role on it. And it was a collaboration with Vocalize. So I worked very closely with Steph Kirkland, who's the executive director. But that was really a choreography by committee. Like that was, I don't know how to make this piece. And so everybody else's experience of that work informed the decisions. And sometimes there's moments where one person has to make the final decision. So we all know what to do. But that was so collaborative in a way that really held a high bar for me. We talk about collaboration as so nice, but really collaboration is a whole bunch of power struggles. That was what I wanted to ask. What have you learned about collaboration? Because collaboration, yes, I mean, oh, collaborate, yummy, yummy. mm, But it is so hard, like you say, it is the power struggle after power struggle. But in this kind of willing, hopefully, we know this is going to happen. What have you learned? Do you have any like super nuggets of wisdom about collaboration? I'm an expert, totally an expert. Um, (laughs) I will say we've had a lot of conflicts or things that have come up in the company or challenges, I'll just say. These kind of community agreements have come out of that. And so it's take the lesson out of each one of them and implement them as a way to work in the future. And for example, we often have a safe word kind of thing. If in rehearsal, when people get frustrated, which inevitably, there's always that moment where people are just like, "Ah, I don't know what's happening. As the director or the person on the outside, you're like, I can't make a decision. I don't know what to do in that kind of panic moment. And we now just have a rule of culture where you can just say, I'm frustrated. And then everybody just goes, great. Okay, we're taking five. And anybody can yell that at any moment. Even if you're a dancer and you're like, I can't get this section, it's really annoying that you can just yell frustration, the word frustration, we all go, cool, step away. <laughs> yeah. And those are things that have came out of conflict. We now are much clearer about expectations and stuff. Before we start a project, we formalize things because we've had conflict. And the kind of relationships, you know, am I talking about dance or am I talking about real life? where you've gone through conflict with someone and are still working together and have committed to be like, okay, we're going to work through this. And now that is where there's the trust. And trust is really particularly important in our work, especially like I am at this moment a dancer without a disability. And for collaborators that I work with who have very different life experience than me, to trust me is like a big fucking deal. And I work really hard and I am accountable to have people who will call me out on stuff and still stick around to work on it with me has been the best gift of this work. It's a lot of work to figure out how to let all those conflicts and power dynamics and problems happen and then still commit to being in the room together rather than them leading to a breakup. There's some therapy built into our process. It sounds so healthy too, because if you move through conflict with transparency with someone, whether it's interpersonal or art making or anything, you'll just be better on the other side and closer. It becomes more intimate, I think. And the conflict happens anyway. We've all been in so many rooms where you just push that shit down. (laughs) Nobody gets to yell frustrated. (laughs) And you go away and there's a bad taste in your mouth. Whereas if you acknowledge it, we can learn so much. There's certain practices and protocols that I have learned from 
the disability justice and disability communities. Practices around access needs and people taking responsibility for the room and sort of culture of care. Those are things that have existed in communities that I haven't been a part of that I'm really fortunate have been shared with me because those are not things that were in my training. You know, you know, when we work to bring in different cultural practices into the room, because ultimately we're humans making the art. So we got to attune to the humanness of this and the interpersonal part of it. I always say the project is successful for all friends at the end still. <laughs> Not if there was a huge audience. That's always nice. Our egos like that. But if we're all still friends or better friends, that's cool. Yeah, exactly. I think it happens less now. But just the tyrant director or choreographer or like the prima donna behavior, or like all this stuff that we gritted our teeth through. Now, you know, the culture is changing. I think we have learned so much from the disability community, from everybody who is saying, I've not been included. Yeah. And these are all the things I've had to do. And how generous to share that. We're all better in a culture of care. It's really transformative. Totally. One of the things that's really great that I've learned in All Bodies is my reference point is that kind of training that I had or that kind of typical. But for most people in the room, that is not the reference point of dance at all. It's not like, oh, we're doing something wild and radical by not doing that. They're just like, oh, yeah, this is what we do. <laughs> Which is like, isn't that the ideal that people wouldn't actually even know that lots of dance practice has been very harmful and hurtful and racist and totally sexist and all these things, you know? So most people don't know that, that work in all bodies. And that's the goal, that they should never know that, that dance doesn't need to be associated with any of those things. Yeah, that dance is just about being a human being. Yeah. And in community and more joy than pain, you know? Ah, yeah. So what are you working on right now? Well, like I said, the real thing is grant writing. I write the word dance about 20 times more than I do dancing. <laughs> but we just did a big community consultation process. We're going through some, okay, how do you run an organization now? We did the fly by the seat of our pants thing for seven years. And now we're like, okay, we're going to get a little policy. That's a big project. And then I'm supposed to go to Croatia in May to remount that piece translations with a group of Croatian dancers in Zagreb for three weeks. And then, wow. Yeah. Not something I've done before and a huge challenge. I think that plane ride is going to be, oh my God, how do I actually do this? But yeah, there's a Croatian presenter, dance artist who came to Vancouver while we were doing a run of it and experienced the work and we stayed in touch and she said, I'm going to write a grant and what do you know? So that's supposed to happen. I hope you can do that. Yeah. You know, we got the grant. It's all confirmed. But wave five, six, seven of COVID could happen. World wars, like who knows? Anything could happen. There's a different way to be in the world than pre-2020 when we made plans and never doubted that they would happen. Oh, yeah. Remember plans? Yeah. 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 Long-term planning. <laughs> it's more true now. Everything is constantly in flux. And now, oh, oh, that has been the case all along. We were just living a dream. Exactly. It was the case all along. We all just pretended. Which is sort of how I describe, I'm taking a real weird left turn here. It's like how I explain non-monogamy to people or polyamory. It's like the same risks exist all the time. You're just not going to acknowledge it in a monogamous relationship. But the potential for something to go awry or someone to, you know, step outside, 
that exists in a monogamous relationship. In polyamory, you just acknowledge that it's there. But anyways, made me think of that. We've worked with this kind of binary in Western white culture for so long around so many things that I feel excited about this moment that we're in right now. Of course, I can be excited because my livelihood is not being threatened in this exact moment as a very privileged white person, but about all the kind of cultural conversations that are happening this moment and the real struggles to fucking figure out this truth and reconciliation and to make amends. It feels that there is a moment where lots of people are questioning a kind of really base assumption about how to exist in the world and certainly in art practices about ways that we work, right? And things being on a spectrum, things being about process, things being about community. I think it's all wrapped up, this decolonization, this reconciling with the huge amount of inequities and things that have come to the surface around Me Too and Black Lives Matter and all that kind of stuff. We're in a kind of cool moment where lots of things are falling apart. You know, we have to think about the generative part of falling apart, you know? I totally agree. We got to just dismantle. Yeah. But also not just put it back together and then it's like done, da, da, da. But put it back together, step back, look at it, talk about it, make adjustments, constant adjusting. Here's another weird metaphor. It's like the difference between finalizing something when you make it into a PDF versus keeping it as an open document on a Google Drive. You know, this is a living document as opposed to like, no, this shit's final. It's a PDF now. And you can sign it, but that's it. You can't change any words. Unless you go and get the expensive Adobe upgrade. Totally. Everything yeah. needs to be like an open document. We revisit things, right? It's not enough to just be like, okay, I'm going to sign a contract. And then two years later, something comes up and, you know, a lot of things need to be renewed. And if, you know, in the past two years of pandemic life, everything is so time specific in the moment. Like we have to reevaluate every moment, you know, and maybe the good part of that is not that we agree to things, commit to things, and then the world changes. Oh, well, we said we're going to do it. That kind of following through because we said we're going to do it how many unfulfilling things we've done because we just said we were going to do it. Yeah, right? Because I've had a cold and my stepdad brought up how Gene Kelly had a fever of 103 when he recorded that Dancing in the Rain sequence. The poor guy. Yeah. Why did he think he had to do that? Who made him do that? It's a film they could have rescheduled. But that thing of like, we said we were going to do it, so we're just going to push through and do it and not question. Yeah. And also, what's relevant now? What's relevant two years ago was not relevant. The world has changed. And so I also am sort of holding on. this like really precious holding on to like what we knew and how we worked and what used to work. Again, I go back to being like, we have to respond to this moment. And I think about this a lot when I write grants, because, you know, you write a grant for a project. You're like, this is what we're going to do. Then time between when you press submit on that grant application and you actually get in the studio. And then heaven forbid, you know, something happens and it gets delayed. Is that original idea still relevant to the world? We had that case right at the beginning of COVID. We got a big grant to make a new ensemble work. And COVID happened and we were like, this piece just would make no sense. There's nothing of value in that concept at that time. I mean, I think about that in the work that we make and who's making it also about are the ideas that I have relevant at this time? whose voice and whose ideas and what aesthetics are actually really needed right now. I can joke and and moan, oh, my job is really just writing emails and grants. But it's been really great to step back a little bit and be like, my choreographic voice isn't the one that needs to be the loudest these days because we're in a different moment than we were 20 years ago, 10 years ago. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think that is so responsive to the moment. Do you feel, because I've heard other white artists bemoaning, there's no place for me. Place for me. I'm not special. Where's my spotlight? (laughs) How do you feel about your place? Do you feel as an artist, as a, you know, activator, all those things? Yeah, I mean, there are certainly days where I feel like, you know, my ego could use a stage and a big applause from all my family and friends. And I also have to acknowledge I'm in a different life place now. You know, so many things have coincided. Like I became a parent. So many things erupted in culture around shining light on inequities. The work that was happening with all bodies sort of coming to a new place. And then COVID. Many of these things have happened in a way that the personal and for me and the global have, you know, to also accept that maybe this isn't my time. I feel sad, for sure. Trying to think of the work that I do in supporting other artists or holding structure or doing basic administrative work also as artistic work. And I know that that could just be, yeah, right, you're just doing a budget. But really, what is dance teaching? It's like you're holding space for other people. And I think that's what All Bodies is. That's what my job is. That's what my, in some ways, my real artistic work is how to hold space for other people. And of course, that's satisfying to me. I wouldn't just be like, I'm so selfless. Let's get serious. No, I have an ego just like everybody else. And she's healthy, that ego. Yeah, it's also the satisfaction of being a part of a group of people feels bigger than myself. And when I was making work on my own, that was really satisfying. As, okay, this is my voice. That is me. And see reflection of that. And, you know, you become a parent. You kind of let go of yourself in a certain way. And I think there'll be a moment. Maybe I'll come back to my own work in a different way. But for now, it feels really good to be a part of a group, to be held in a group. Yeah, it is so important to be in community. And I think in our culture, we've this individualistic loneliness. And what am I doing? What is my work? So it's ultimately really lonely and can feel really empty. And that kind of the breathing in and out of community, sometimes you're a part of the big blob and sometimes you fracture out of that. But it's just, it's always moving and changing. Yeah. And I mean, it's like family. We want to be in the crowd and then we want to be on our own. But those are sort of like really natural dynamics in life, in the world, in the natural world of being in community, being individual. And that self and other, that's kind of one of the big themes of all bodies. And if I were to look back and write my autobiography right now, some of the themes in my work, you know, about the individual and the group, that's a theme in many, many people's work, but how we fit in community. But yeah, you spend a lot of time by yourself. Do you feel lonely? People think I spend a lot of time by myself because I make solo work, but I make it in ensemble. Yeah. When I have to go in and like, I got to remember the moves, blah, blah, blah. But I almost always have, I mean, through COVID, it's been like one or two people at a time, but sometimes it's like eight people yeah. because I don't make work in a vacuum. I can't. It would yeah. be horrible. <laughs> we all need to be accountable to someone and to feel sure. that like work is accountable to someone. And so if I'm just accountable to that one person who said they're going to be at the studio at 10 a.m., then that's great. <laughs> yeah, it's so important. And the older I get, I think I, I could tolerate more alone when I was younger, but art making is all relational. It's all conversation, whether it's with the outside eye or your directors or your collaborators, the audience. And even when you talk about grant writing and budgets, 
I have a colleague who says the budget is the story of the art. I was told that too. That really shifted my idea about budgets. I thought they were just numbers, but no, they tell stories. You know, are you putting your importance? What's valuable to you? I mean, I'm not about to go study accounting, but it all is a reflection. All of that administrative stuff can be a reflection of the work that you make and what you want to put out into the world and how you're putting it out. Exactly. And how you're taking care and. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. My last question. Oh, no. Okay. Here we go. Don't worry. Is there something you're doing that is helping you stay creative or not, you know, sink into the big hole? (laughs) Yeah. Not giving into crustiness. Yeah. I'd like to come up with something really profound. But in this moment, this is what I'm coming up with. I take pictures of beautiful things and put them on Instagram. To be totally honest, it's so ridiculous. And like I said, it's not profound, but it's kind of a practice of looking for beautiful things. Actually, kind of nice. And I mean, let's get serious. I take a lot of pictures of cherry blossoms. But that thing of actively looking for composition and looking for beauty and looking at the world, I guess just looking at the world (laughs) rather than just moving through it. I'd say I've learned that in the past two years during some dark times and a lot of walks in my neighborhood to stay reminded that the world is actually quite magical and beautiful. And mostly that's the natural world. You know, when things get really shitty, going hang out among a bunch of trees and plants feels good to be like, right, there's organization and there's community and all those kumbaya things I was just talking about. You see that among plants. The plants have figured it out. And we're just so stubborn that we're not listening. We're just talking too much that we're not listening. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But what I was going to say more about me. The other thing that's keeping me out of crustiness is just continually little texting. You know, it's like these little things of just feeling like I'm still connected to the world. And it's small little things, you know, funny texting chains and pictures of babies. And, you know, the world got really, around COVID, got really insular. And now this thing of reaching back out again and feeling across distance in little mundane ways, you know. Full disclosure, Tara and I are on a Jewish texting train with colleagues. The little things that really keep me from being jaded. And the little things are the big things. To circle back to what you were talking about earlier, the micro is the macro. It's real. It's the pictures of Julie's baby and the Hamantash and you know, yeah, life is about all these little ridiculous, like life is really ridiculous these days. It's nice to lean into that (laughs) and to just laugh at it. I mean, That's how our people have survived for decades, generations. Generations. Make a joke out of the pain. It's really the best method. It really is. It really is. It seems to be working in your artistic career. (laughs) Oh, if I couldn't laugh, it would be really bleak. It would be really, really bleak. Trauma plus time equals comedy. Wow. Did you come up with that? No, no. My good friend, JD, who probably got it from somewhere else and paraphrased it. It's good. That's very good. good. Naomi, thank you so much. I hope you get to go to Croatia. I hope so too. Yeah, well, it's going to be fun. Thanks for letting me chat with you. Oh, my pleasure. A real dream come true, Tara. So good. And that's it. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much, Naomi, for sitting down and having such a great conversation. I have more questions. I have lots to think about. I love it so much. Please get in touch with us. Instagram, Tara Cheyenne TCP. 
Facebook, Terrashine Performance, or even email info at terrashine.com if you know somebody that you'd love to hear interviewed on this podcast. I love suggestions. If you yourself would like to be interviewed, absolutely. Why not? I love talking to people. I love sharing all these conversations and stories and tidbits of wisdom that we all have. Talking Shit with Tara Cheyenne is a project of Tara Cheyenne Performance. It is produced, edited, and with original music by Mark Stewart. You can reach him at markstewartmusic.com. The more you create, the more powerful you become. The more you consume, the more powerful others become. That's a quotation from James Clear. Keep making shit up, everybody. We'll see you next time. This podcast is effing good.